Good afternoon, everyone. There's a story I ran across the other day. It's about this kid he was laying in the field, and it was a beautiful day. It was blue, some nice fluffy clouds, and he decided to make out the shapes, and he saw big, gigantic bunnies and turtles. He doesn't know what came over him, but he decided, I'm going to talk to God. So he says, God? And then God responded, yes. The kid says, it's all so big. Um, how long is a million years? And God answered, in my reference, oh, it's about a minute. Says, wow. He says, God? Yes. How much is a million dollars? God said, well, a penny, a nickel. Says, wow. Says, God, I just have one more question. Yes. Can I have a dime? <laughs> God thinks for a moment, and he says, you know what? Yes, you can have a dime. Just give me a minute. <laughs> kids, kids are really clever. If you, um, if you have any extended time with any nephews or nieces or elementary schoolers at all, you're going to hear these kind of stories and questions and jokes all day long. You may not know this, but my wife um, was a first grade teacher, and she came home with a lot of these stories, and we would laugh and would laugh, and um, she'd also come home with some stories that weren't quite so funny. They were about difficult families or difficult situations that she was trying to work herself through and figure out. Now, I remember this one time she had a kid in her class who had been suspended several times way before he got to kindergarten and way before he ever came into her class. Turns out he lived an incredibly chaotic life, very unhealthy home, and it had gone on for years and years, and he was only in first grade now. So as a teacher, there was this constant tension for my wife, justice or mercy when I respond to how this kid reacts. Mercy was taking this child's pain and experiences into account when threats were made to the other kids, when threats were made towards her, when the kids' papers were getting ripped and things were being broken, that's mercy. But at the same time, justice called for holding boundaries, for keeping consequences, to provide guidance and growth for this boy, to protect the classmates, to preserve a safe and a peaceful learning environment. If all this child ever experienced was mercy, that would have caused harm to those whom his big behaviors and his big emotions had hurt. Mercy for him often meant harm for another kid. Justice only for him would have done harm to him as well because it would have denied the impact of his painful childhood experiences. He's only in first grade. He's carrying this every single day as a result. There's a notion, justice and mercy, existing in harmony, it's a difficult notion to hold. It's complex. I can remember plenty of times in my life where childhood justice played out the way I thought, and other times it was completely opposite. Either justice was served and I was maneuver, uh, shoveling horse manure um, at the um, boarding school that I was at because I was being silly on a weekend, or someone was kind and they offered mercy and I just, just walked free, clearly deserving something that I didn't get. Now, many of us could probably share story after story of any 
or many church experiences where you've leaned more heavily at a time on God as a God of law and God as a God of order and God as a God of justice, as well as experiences that lean more heavily towards God as a God of mercy, God as a God of love, God as a God of kindness. Focusing on God primarily as a God of mercy or God of justice does not represent an untrue story. However, as Peter illustrates today, it is an incomplete story. It's a complex tension that we can sometimes attempt to simplify, which leads to sliding into a sort of lopsided focus on either too much of God's justice, legalism, shame, fear, or we can lean harder into God's mercy, which is what Peter is trying to combat at the church that he's writing these letters to. We can lean on God as only merciful, the friend, father, living in the freedom of our own desires and what feels right to us as individuals because we know God's going to forgive us later. Well, this morning we will examine 2 Peter in a little bit more depth. We'll see Peter work to balance out this lopsided, you can live however you want now because God already forgave you truth that's being peddled by the false teachers in Rome. And Peter illustrates just how much God loves us because the story is both a story of love that comes through justice and a story of love that comes through mercy. God, our creator, is not only a God of justice. He's not only a God of mercy. He's just God and he loves you. He is for you. He is all of these things at the same time, and he's so much more than we can ever expect. Wish I had some slides, but I'm going to walk you guys through how we're going to unpack this very dense topic. First, we're going to look at God's justice as a fact. It exists. And then secondly, we'll examine how the existence of God's justice reveals the depth of God's love, his mercy, mainly through the saving grace of his son. And then lastly, we'll explore how do we navigate this space between God's justice and God's mercy. When navigating it means we have to look honestly at the stories that we're telling ourselves and the stories we're allowing others to tell us. Justice is a fact. Let's start with that first. So Peter begins his story with three examples of how God met rebellion with his justice. He comes in fast. He comes in hard. He has a mission. He wants to make this clear. One, he talks about the condemnation of angels who sinned against God and were sent to hell in gloomy chains of darkness. You can read more about that in Genesis 6 or in the book of Jude. We won't go into that. It's an interesting backstory. Read it. Two, he looks at the destruction of the entire world during the time of the flood. Just justice. And then he looks at the raising of Sodom and Gomorrah, fire coming down. Justice. This section is taking to task the claims of these false teachers that we see later in 2 Peter. They peddle mercy, skewed views of God. In Peter's day, they scoffed. They would say, knowing this, first of all, 
The scoffers will come in the last days with scoffing following their own sinful desires, and they would say, where's the promise of his coming? For ever since the fathers fell asleep, all things are continuing as they were from the beginning of creation. They deliberately overlooked this fact. The heavens existed long ago, and the earth was formed out of water and through water by the word of God. And that means of these, the world that then existed was deluged with water and it perished. But by the same word, the heavens and the earth that now exist are stored up by fire, being kept until the day of judgment and destruction of the ungodly. Peter just says, look, let's just look at our history. Let's start at the beginning. He says at the top, for if God did not spare angels when they sinned, but cast them into hell, committed them to chains of gloomy darkness to be kept until the judgment. If he did not spare the ancient world, but preserved Noah, a herald of righteousness with seven others, when he brought a flood down upon the world on the ungodly, if by turning the cities of Sodom and Gomorrah to ashes, he condemned them to extinction, making them an example of what is going to happen to the ungodly, God does justice. By starting with the falling angels, Peter stresses the importance of remembering that God's justice exists. It existed from the very beginning as a core part of who God is. And then he tracks the consistency of God's justice through the generations from the fall to the flood to the fires that fell on Sodom and Gomorrah. And by showing God's justice throughout history, Peter is simply telling a fuller story of God's justice that transcends the present moment. And though it doesn't, it does not always look like it. Or at least false prophets would have them believe that it will never happen. God's justice exists. Now, Peter is writing his last letter from a prison cell. He knows what's about to happen next. So he wants to make a point about what is and what isn't. I remember I would complain to my mom all the time about what we did or didn't have in our apartment. Mom, why don't we have a uh, Nintendo? Why don't we have um, ice cream and pizza all the time? And my mom would say, every time, she would say, Isaiah, what you need is either in this house or it's not in this house. And that would drive me crazy. <laughs> I'm like, what do you mean? She's like, if it's not here, you don't need it. It can't show up. She would say, if you squeeze a tube of toothpaste, marshmallows are not coming out. What's in that toothpaste is what's coming out of that toothpaste tube. If there's no such thing as justice, there is no such thing as mercy. You can't have a God of mercy if there's no reason to be merciful. There has to be justice for mercy to exist. His mercy only reveals itself in light of his justice. Which brings me to our second point. God's justice reveals the depth of God's mercy, namely his saving grace, his love for all of us. So as we see God passing through the stories of the flood of Sodom and Gomorrah, Peter now shows that God knows that his people are there living in an ungodly world. And so God in his mercy not only upholds the righteous, he knows how to rescue them from their trials. This is what he wrote. He said, if God did not spare the ancient world, but preserved Noah, a herald of righteousness with seven others, 
when he brought a flood upon the world of ungodly, if by turning the cities of Sodom and Gomorrah to ashes, he condemned them to extinction, making them an example of what is going to happen to the ungodly. And if he rescued righteous Lot, greatly distressed by the sensual conduct of the wicked, for as that righteous man lived among them day after day, he was tormenting his righteous soul over their lawless deeds that he had saw and he'd heard. Then, he says, the Lord knows how to rescue godly from trials. Peter is injecting stories of righteous Noah and righteous Lot into a story of the fall, into the story of God's justice. And that is meant to encourage believers about the grace of God. By saying, if God strengthened Noah and God strengthened Lot in situations where evil dominated, then he would also preserve the believers who were confronting deception posed by false teachers. It's a theologian who I've been studying as I was going through this text. His name is Thomas Schreiner. I like the way he put it. It was very logical. He says, well, if you walk through the text, this is what it says. Okay, God judged the angels and... He judged the flood generation. At the same time, he saved Noah. Yes. Okay. He judged Sodom and Gomorrah. At the same time, he preserved Lot. Yes. Then it follows that the Lord will preserve the godly in the midst of their trials. Drawing this conclusion from the example of Noah and Lot. Wow. It was very logical. He made a lot of sense. Sounds like a wonderful proposition. Very sound argument. Until you look at Noah and you look at Lot's story, and you peel back just one or two pages, and you see these were not men that were pure and without sin. They deserved justice, both of them. I would venture to say if you peel back the pages of everyone in the Bible but Jesus, you would find, hmm, what's going on here? God's mercy is extending to the righteous. But we see it imperfectly. We see it imperfectly because his justice sits next to his mercy. And his mercy, when it comes over you, still seems to absorb those things that we deserve. And Noah's not alone in his righteousness. He has family members that go with him. You know, we don't have a complete knowledge of all the trials that everyone in the Bible goes through. But what we do know is no one is without sin. And we recognize and we respect God's divine justice. We can rest assured that if God will rescue Lot and Noah, he will rescue anyone, his people, both operating in perfect harmony. He's loving and he's just. He's just and he is loving. So one night, my daughter padded down the stairs from her room, thought she was asleep. She was rubbing her eyes. She was scared of something. I don't know what. Daddy, I can't sleep. I'm too scared. So I carried her back upstairs to her bed. This is how our conversation basically went. I was like, baby, are you okay? So I'm afraid. I'm like, what's wrong? The tornado. It's like, what tornado? I said, baby, okay, I take out my phone. I look at the weather app, of course. I'm like, baby, there's no tornado. You're good to go. So I try to leave, and she's crying again, and I go back. What is going on? She said, the fire. What if there's a fire? And then I'm like, okay, I think I know what's going on. So I sit her down, and I say, if there is a fire, 
I will bust through the walls. Nothing will stop me from coming up those stairs and getting you and your sister out of this room. If I have to jump out of the window with you on my back, we are getting out. I will not leave you. Then she rolled over and went to sleep. We represent God, his love, as her father. I tried my best. But theologian Tim Keller put this a lot better than I can when it comes to us as adults. Here's what he said. It's not enough to know that God loves you. If you want to become wise, you have to find it and pound it deep into your heart every day that he is absolutely committed to you, that he will never leave you or forsake you, that he would do anything for you. You have to be absolutely in your heart of hearts of hearts. You have to pound it into your heart every day. Bind it on your heart. You've got to find ways every day to make sure that the absolute industrial strength, commitment, love, faithfulness of God to you is real to your heart. You have to learn it deep in your soul that he absolutely loves you. And then he says, why is that so important to wisdom and knowledge? He said, it's the primary thing. So my wife and I got into reading stories to the kids, probably because they couldn't sleep at night. And we started reading the Chronicles of Narnia. So we came up to the fifth book, I believe, The Horse and His Boy. And God must have known I needed a good story for tonight because there were three nights in a row where I was on for reading. So I'm reading the story, and then this interesting character pops up. And I track her all the way to the end. So in this story, this character named Erebus, she's on the run. She's had a very difficult life, and she is really hoping to escape to Narnia. So she hits the road. She finds a way to escape. En route, Erebus encounters various dangers, including being chased by lions, lots of other creatures that wish to do her harm. And on one occasion, a lion chased her down and swiped its claws, and it got her because, you know, you can't outrun a lion. And there she is, laying there, crawling towards this house, and she makes her way inside. Now, when she gets in this house, she finds someone who's a healer, and he cares for her, gives her a place to sleep, he heals her, protects her, and that's where her story essentially ends for the rest of the book. Now, while she's there recovering, she meets another character, a lion named Aslan, or Aslan. I always say it wrong. Well, Aslan reveals that he's been guiding her this entire journey. And then he reveals that he was the only lion that she encountered and that he actually protected Erebus her entire life. Here's the conversation that they had. Draw near me, my daughter. See, my paws are velveted. You will not be torn this time. This time, sir, says Erebus. It was I who wounded you, said Aslan. I am the only lion you met in all of your journeyings. Do you know why I tore you? No, sir. The scratches on your back, tear for tear, throb for throb, blood for blood, were equal to the stripes laid on the back of your stepmother's slave because of the drugs you gave her to sleep. You needed to know what that felt like. Yes, sir. Then she says, please ask on, my dear, said Aslan. 
Will any more harm come to her because of what I did? Child, said the lion, I'm telling you your story, not hers. No one is told anyone's story but their own. Noah, Lot, God knows you, your story. He knows how to rescue the righteous. He knows your heart, and he is fiercely, fiercely running after you. You have to believe that. Because although she doesn't discover it until later, Erebus simultaneously experiences Aslan's justice and his mercy. He demonstrates his justice when he wounds her to help her know the pain of her actions that she had inflicted on another. And then he demonstrates mercy as he uses his claws to wound only, only as much as necessary, not to kill Erebus. And he could have. And the chase he had, he was running after her so that she would go towards the house of the healer. In closing, point three, wisdom and knowledge of God's love is what we need to navigate that space between his justice and his mercy. Because God's love, in terms of how it expresses itself in that space, it only shows up one way, the cross. It's where justice and mercy kiss. It's Jesus. How God grew Noah and Lot and pulled them out of the waters of judgment, I'll never know. But God knows his people. These stories, the words in the book, the story about my daughter, every story that Peter is laying out before the church at the time, we can read them with an eye to where God is advancing the kingdom and his story of redemption, his story of restoration, and his story of justice simultaneously within the same story. Similar to how Aslan administered justice to Erebus and helped move her toward healing and safety in the larger story he was orchestrating in Narnia. Erebus didn't see it, not completely. When she only saw Aslan administering justice, that's all she saw. But she understood later that that encapsulated both his justice and his love and his mercy. Now, Noah and Lot probably cried for God's justice a lot, and they were very uniquely aware of what God's justice looked like. How could Noah and Lot not know what God was capable of doing? But think about where they are right now. I think they are very happy and they're surprised and elated by the idea of God's mercy. Our visions, our plans to put this world right, to make it the way we want it to be someday, they're just simply not greater than God's plans. We can't see Lot, Noah, others, ourselves. We can't see people truly the way that God does. His plan for brokenness, his plan for marriages, his plan for protecting the lives of the vulnerable, the lonely, the confused, the downtrodden, the oppressed, his plan for sin that has been done against us, sin we've done against others, knowingly and unknowingly, it's all in between his justice and his mercy. And it's right there. That is God's greatest plan. 
This is the rescue plan, the sacrificing of his son on behalf of us. And so we get to witness the fullness of God's mercy in light of the justice that we deserve. I'm reminded of Romans 6.23, it tells us that the wages of sin is death, but the free gift of God, that's eternal life. In Christ Jesus, our Lord, God's real justice, and what we really deserve for our sin is death, but his free and merciful gift to us is eternal life and communion with Christ. The cross is where they meet. The cross is where they kiss. Even if we've been forgiven and freed by putting our faith in Christ, we often still have questions. They bubble up to the top and it pushes us toward half-truths. We doubt God's love for very good reason. And we often live long lives the way we want to, pursuing the thing we want and doubt. There's a theologian, a psychologist, his name is Dan Allender. And he wrote this book called How Children Raise Parents. Here's what he wrote. He said, the children bring two core questions to the caregivers. Am I loved? And can I do whatever I want? And Allender goes on to suggest, and this is relevant for all of us, I think, we should listen to their responses. They're very precious. They tell us the truth. Because what they deeply crave is the same core desire that we find in our hearts. And as we listen, we'll learn to ask the same question of God. And we'll listen to God. And here's what he'll probably say. Yes, you are loved more than you can ever fathom. And no, you cannot do whatever you want. But as you pursue my way, you'll find the deepest satisfaction that your heart can ever know. And this is where the needle scratches on a record of a song you've been playing, you want to hear playing forever. A theologian named N.T. Wright, he talked about how everyone wanted Jesus to be this one thing. They wanted to see him one way, the warrior. He said they were looking for a builder, and when he came, he was an architect. They were looking for someone to sing the songs that they've been singing their entire lives. And when he came, he was a composer writing an entire new song of which their song might be the background music, they were looking for a king. And when he came, he was a king all right. But he come to redefine kingship itself around his own work, his own mission, his own fate. I don't have a lot of takeaways from this, just one practical application for all of us. Because it's hard, it's countercultural to look at the fullness of a person's story, the way God looks at us, it's hard to look at Jesus and let him be who he is. But can we, can we be willing to see people, to see one another in the shadow of the cross as people who deserve both justice and mercy, particularly when we feel that another has sinned against us greatly? That's the fullness of God's story. We can rest in the arms of our Father as he administers both to us in infinitely perfect wisdom. It's a saying that I, I sometimes struggle with when I'm hurt by someone, but it's good to know. As we look at not Lot and we look at Noah, it tells us a story that every saint has a past. And because of that, every sinner has a future. And I thank God for that. 
An incomplete story of God's mercy is not enough to cover the complete story of God's justice. And an incomplete story of God's justice is not enough to cover the complete story that is God's mercy. God is our creator. He's the only God of justice, the only God of mercy. He is the only true God. He's God. And he loves you. He's for you. He's our merciful father and he will bring us a peace that will surpass our understanding. Let us pray. Heavenly Father, thank you for the cross. Thank you for making the space and holding back the walls of your justice so that we have time. Thank you for being patient and giving us time to doubt you and to in faith come to you. Thank you for the church that gives us a place to go and to learn and grow in knowledge and the wisdom of you. Heavenly Father, you are so much more than we deserve. And so we lay our lives, we lay our stories at the foot of the cross, thankful that you are who you are, fiercely loyal, a father running for his child who runs through a wall of fire to save us all. It's in your name we pray. Amen.